Hello, welcome to the edited version of Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. If you'd like to hear the full version of this conversation, then you can go to cosmicshambles.com slash bookshambles and become one of our Patreon supporters, uh, which you can do for as little as $1 an episode. That's one US dollar, and obviously it will depend on which of our economies is declining more, uh, how much that actually works out in pounds, uh, euros, etc. <laughs> Hello, a quick advert before the show. My book, I'm a Joke and So Are You, is out now in bookshops and also I will be touring around the UK. In fact, I am touring around the UK at the moment every single day until the 17th of December, so I may well be coming to a town near you. Yes, make sure you do grab a copy of Robin's book and thanks very much to everyone who came along to our live launch event for Robin's book last week at King's Place. Chunks of that show will be out as a Book Shambles podcast in the future, including uh, Robin's chat with Philip Perry and Stuart Lee. And remember, we will be back at King's Place in December for four nights of Nine Lessons and Carols for Curious People, all hosted by Robin. Lots of brilliant guests will be there throughout that. Different guests every night. Matt Parker, Helen Chersky, Josie Long, Grace Petrie... Joe Neary, Chris Stokes, Lucy Green, Hannah Fry, Dr. Carl, Steve Pretty, and on and on and on and on. And as always, profits from those gigs will be going to charity. Uh, we'll be collecting for the Trussell Trust at the gigs again as well. And uh, yeah, profits going to the two charities we've chosen this year, Two Wheels for Life and Mind. So on to this week's episode, another recorded live at the Edinburgh Fringe back in August. And apologies for some variable sound quality uh, in this episode. We have cleaned it up in post as best we can. There might still be a little bit of hiss and uh, feedback tone remaining, but it's significantly better than what the uh, live audience had to listen to on the day because this was recorded on the day that uh, our sound engineer for our show at the venue just didn't show up. So it was a case of me uh, trying to program a sound desk that I knew very little about. Uh, so apologies uh, for that. But it doesn't take away from what is a fascinating discussion between Robin and our very special guest today, Mr Neil Gaiman. Oh, and thank you very much, of course, to our Patreon supporters. As usual, uh, your support means we can uh, continue to make the show and also means we can uh, afford the post-production time to kind of, without your support, basically, this episode uh, would have been lost to the ether. So thank you very much for your continued support. You can become a Patreon supporter at patreon.com slash book shambles for as little as $1 a month or $1 an episode. We never charge more than uh, three episodes a month as well. And you'll get lots of goodies there, including extended episodes of Book Shambles uh, like this one. So if you'd like to hear bonus chat between Robin and Neil, head over to patreon.com slash bookshambles and pledge. I'll just start off by quickly saying thank you very much for coming down to uh, Book Shambles, coming from uh, the Edinburgh Fringe Fest. Oh, how's that sound for you just keep mucking around? Uh, coming right. Now, no, I should also say, uh, for those of you who do listen to Book Shambles, uh, we normally have Josie Long as well, and I've done over 100 episodes with Josie. 
But uh, Josie has, uh, in a rather kind of spiteful and mean-spirited way, decided to find extreme happiness by having a child. And gone, do you know what? I don't seek the approbation of strangers this year. I'm fine at home with my three-month-old, which is why she's not here. And she's having a fantastic time, though. Uh, and uh, I'm very glad that for someone who I've been asking for, probably since the, the show began about two years ago to come on, and this time he was available, uh, please welcome to this book shambles, Neil Gaiman. Right, we've talked about this uh, already. We're kind of not going to talk much about your work. We may well end up talking about your work. I'm, I'm as sure well. we will tangentially glance upon it because we'll bump into it. Somewhere. I think that's yeah. That's the uh, the last time that we saw each other before Edinburgh was uh, a very sad day, yeah. and uh, I, I didn't know at the time when I actually saw you, but you, you mentioned something. It was the day where you found out uh, the the great author of imaginative fiction. Harlan Ellison had died yes. and he was a very good friend of yours if people have seen the, the fantastic documentary Dreams with Sharp Teeth there are brilliant things both in that documentary and in the extras as well of you talking with him and still he's considering he's someone who has created so many stories and being involved in so many very, very... Uh, it almost feels like Harlan's coming through, being angry already that I'm <laughs> fucking up the introduction to it. Fuck you! Fuck you, your introduction! But he was... He had this incredible energy, an incredible imaginative energy. He, the titles of his stories are the moment you see them, you go, I have to read that. I have no mouth and I must scream. Repent, Harlequin, said the TikTok man. You know, these are, you know, the whimper of whip dogs. I want to say, first of all, when did you become aware of Harlan Ellison's work? First became aware of Harlan's work aged 10, maybe 11, um, when I was given some year's best science fiction books. And um, one of the stories one year was, was uh, I have no mouth and I'm a scream. Uh, the next year, which is a really good story to read when you're 10. You know, it just messes up your head. Um, <laughs> Repent Harlequin said the TikTok man. And somewhere in there, it... And I would keep running into references to the Dangerous Visions anthologies as well. Um, so I managed to buy them and when I was 12, maybe 13. And again, great stories to read at that kind of golden age of science fiction time. They, they screw up your head in glorious, glorious ways. And just loved what Harlan did, loved the anger, loved the passion, loved the fury, loved the fact that his funny stories were funny and his painful stories had pain and that there seemed to be emotion in everything. Um, this is, uh, uh, so that's, uh, I'm, I'm just on the golden age of science fiction, I find that you know, dangerous visions, as I think, is it, is it, uh, I always get confused because it's broken up in so many different volumes, but there's, yeah. there's, there's two volumes, full volumes of dangerous visions, uh, as far as it's I remember. Essentially, I mean, there, there, was, there was dangerous visions which came out in the late 60s, there was again dangerous visions which came out in the early 70s, um, each of them was in, divided into volumes, and then there was the last Dangerous Visions that never happened, uh, that Harlan bought bundles of stories for. Again, Dangerous Visions, which came out 
as I say, early 70s was like a giant advert for the last Dangerous Visions. And I remember aged, what, 16, 17, going into Dark They Were and Golden Eyed in, uh, in St. Anne's Place, at that time St. Anne's Court in Soho, and uh, saying, uh, excuse me, um, is the last Dangerous Visions out yet? And this would have been 1977, and they laughed at me then. <laughs> and I think it, it was one of those things that people continued to be asked uh, for, you know, probably until Harlan's death. Well, that's, when you mentioned Dark They Were and Gold Night, which I think also appears, as far as I remember, in one of the books of uh, uh, Century, Alan Moore's uh, uh, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, but that's, those things were, for me, that, and then later on, things like the original Fid Forbidden Planet in, in Denmark Street, that they gave, you know, for the odd girls and boys, these kind of places seem to allow a level of freedom which you might not have been able to have at school, if you were. And I wondered, for you, this... this this new world of imagination, these, these strange thoughts, which for those who don't feel they fit in, seems to be, you know, it was a very, very important rite of passage. I, was, I mean, what fascinates me now is you walk past giant wizardy shops. You walk past, fantasy has not just become mainstream, it's high street. Um, <laughs> the idea of being a 16-year-old where fantasy was high street was impossible you had to go to London. You had to go to London, you had to head into Soho, you had to find first Berwick Street Market and then St Anne's Court, which barely existed. I mean, St Anne's Court was like one of those places that you read about in stories that is not there the next time you go past. Um, and very soon in there, you'd find St Anne's Court and dark they were and Golden Eye had gone the way of all flesh. But just for it's a, a hairdresser's now, so I go far less often. Oh. It is, it's become it's. But anyway, but that was that was where you went to find things. You went there to find the books that you weren't going to find otherwise because they were being brought in from America. Um, you went in to find comics that weren't being brought in. You know, I, w I would always come back with the Will Eisner Spirit collections that that Kitchen Sink and Warren were doing. I'd come back with, I remember triumphantly coming home with Roger Zelazny's Road Marks and just books that I knew that I was never going to see in Sussex or in Croydon. I, liked, I remember about 20 years ago, Stuart Lee was in Birmingham and he went into a games workshop and he hadn't been there since he was a teenager and he was just looking, just for and this guy came up to him and said, uh, the, uh, he said, uh, can I help you at all, sir? And Stuart went, oh no, it's fine, I just used to you know, really be into this, but I've, I've not really been into it for about 15 years. And the bloke just laughed and he went, I think you'll find the world of uh, fighting fancy role-playing has changed somewhat in the last two decades. <laughs> <laughs> Such a beautiful moment. Um, so, going back to Harlan, th this first of all, I, 
there's something, I know, I don't want to say where did his ideas come, but that level of imagination, that bit where almost to dream, to fall asleep was an annoyance to him because all of those stories are in there. He does seem to be, even amongst writers I know who are, 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 are tremendously, uh, have a tremendous kind of fertility of imagination, he seemed to have something which he just couldn't stop writing. Just the story, and that so many short stories as well, just story after story after story. Yeah, it's interesting. I, when I first entered the world of, of fantasy as a semi-semi-semi-professional, a very young journalist going to my first ever fantasy convention and I, I was sitting next to um, an editor at one of the big English publishers and he said, so what are you reading? And I, I, I said, well, I, you know, I love a few, I talked about authors I loved to him, which was great, and then I mentioned Harlan. And he said, well, Harlan Ellison, he's never going to write a novel. I think we can all agree that there's a waste of talent there. He just doesn't have it in him. And I thought, well, what a strange thing to say. It's, it's like saying of a stand-up comedian. I think we can all agree he's never going to write a symphony. <laughs> it's like, well, they, are, they are different skill sets. And what Harlan was amazing at was writing polemics. Mm. Um, Years on, when, when we were friends, I remember talking to him once. And Harlan at the time seemed really, really old to me. And it's very weird. It's only now that I'm about to recount this, I realize that he was younger then than I am now. <laughs> so I would have been, you know, 29, maybe 30, and Harlan would have been in his mid-50s. So Harlan was mid-50s. I would have been late 20s, early 30s. I'm writing Sandman. And I remember saying to him, um, you know, I cannot get out of my head what, what you've done. You've done some amazing stuff. And he said, one thing that terrified me, which is he said, yeah, you know, one day, kid, you'll feel how I feel when you know all of your best work is behind you. <laughs> that is a terrifying thing to hear. And even now, it gives me chills. And I go, okay, do I think all my best work's behind me? No, I think I, I still maybe, there, there may still be some good stuff up ahead. Um, but the other thing that he told me, he, he started telling me about the circumstances of writing his stories. And I realized that Harlan doesn't write stories, didn't write stories the way that I write a short story. If I write a short story, I will um, probably start out with a notebook and I'll handwrite a bunch of stuff and then I'll type it all into the computer and try and make it look like I knew what I was doing all along. And then I'll read it through and I'll show it to a few friends and I'll go, oh, okay, this doesn't work for you. This doesn't, okay, let me fix that. And, and eventually, I bodge something together, and I am very, very proud of it. And that is the short story that goes on to win awards or not win awards or, or whatever. But that's how I create. Harlan would think about it. And he'd think about it for a while. And then he would sit down and write it all in one draft. There was no, and this is on a typewriter. There was no second draft. 
there was probably, you know, there may have been occasional tipex things, uh, you know, changes, but, but basically that's his draft. He's done it. And the idea that everything that Harlan did was first draft um, is terrifying. The idea that, you know, he, he was like, well, yeah, when I wrote uh, I Have No Mouth and I'm a Scream, I just stayed up all night. Wrote that fucking sure story. Won every fucking award. <laughs> It does seem that you can almost hear the typewriter in the stories. Once you find that out and you feel just the way yeah. that it comes out and there you can a, see that bang, that each letter is fantastic. Here, let me, let me read you a little bit. And as, as you listen to this, just remember this is coming straight out of the typewriter. It was a long trip to the ice caverns to find the canned food. Oh, we have a bunch of people after... There's an apocalypse. A, an intelligent computer has taken over the world. It is all-powerful. It is God. And it's keeping half a dozen people alive. That's the scenario. See, that now seems very prescient when we think about the nature of social media and, and the fear that eventually we go, we don't exist. We are no more than an avatar. This whole fucking Twitter thing is part of the torture. And you go, ah, yeah, Harlan's covered that already. There, there is a short story by Harlan called The Man Who Was Heavily Into Revenge. Um, and it's about the collective hatred of the human race focusing on one plumber who has fucked over this woman. And she's like, and suddenly it's happening and everybody hates him. And it's like, oh, that is very prescient. That is, that is the nature of the world. You actually got it right. It is outrage culture. It is, it is that thing of whose turn is it to be hated? <laughs> this week, we will hate you. And the good thing is this reverberation actually works very well for the story. <laughs> so let's pretend it's an effect. <laughs> it was a long trip to the ice caverns to find the canned food. Ellen kept talking about Bing cherries and Hawaiian fruit cocktail. I tried not to think about it. The hunger was something that had come to life, even as AM had come to life. It was alive in my belly, even as we were in the belly of the earth. And AM, or Am, wanted the similarity known to us, so he heightened the hunger. There was no way to describe the pains that not having eaten for months brought us. And yet, we were kept alive. Stomachs that were merely cauldrons of acid, bubbling, foaming, always shooting spears of sliver-thin pain into our chests. It was the pain of the terminal ulcer, terminal cancer, terminal paresis. It was unending pain, and we passed through the cavern of rats, and we passed through the path of boiling steam, and we passed through the country of the blind, and we passed through the slough of despond, and we passed through the veil of tears, and we came finally to the ice caverns, horizonless thousands of miles in which the ice had formed in blue and silver flashes, where novas lived in the glass, the down-dropping stalactites as thick and glorious as diamonds that have been made to run like jelly, and then solidified in graceful eternities of smooth, sharp perfection. We saw the stack of canned goods and we tried to run to them. We fell in the snow and we got up and went on and Benny shoved us away and went at them and poured at them and gummed them and gnawed at them and he could not open them. AM had not given us a tool to open the cans. It is, uh, 
That's great because th this is one of the things that I find sometimes a bit depressing is I'm still amazed at how many people don't know about Hull Nelson's work, despite the fact they may well have seen films that have been hugely influenced by him. Mean, if, if you don't know this, he uh, sued the makers of The Terminator because basically when it was, it was an Outer Limits story, wasn't it? And I think one other Demon story. Demon with a Glass Hand yeah. and Soldier which were Outer Limits stories. Soldier, which is one with Charles Bronson, I think, isn't it? And then there's, uh, and he wrote City on the Edge of Forever, which is, if you don't know the story behind that, it's an incredible, it's considered to be the greatest Star Trek episode. And then there's a book that came out with uh, Hull Nelson's original screen because he was not happy, was he, with... Uh, this is part of the thing that, there's a lovely quote by him, which I may well uh, bowdlerize by mistake, but he, he said, uh, I think, uh, he said, with fearlessness comes great stupidity. <laughs> and it seems that he, you know, he was fearless as far as the number of people that he was, you know, in Hollywood where so many people do kowtow to, you know, just going, okay, well, you know what, I better just say yes because these people are in charge. And he was like, no, no one's going to fuck me over. And the brilliant part of, uh, you may have seen it on YouTube, part of Dreams with Sharp Teeth, you know, pay the fucking writer, you know, which is one of the greatest moments of spleen that has ever occurred. And I just want to, you know, how much do you think that did damage some of the possibilities of Harlan Nelson, or did that allow him then to just keep creating all of these short stories where he had control? Well, Harlan, on the one hand, is the only human being I've ever known who actually had an organization who called themselves the enemies of Ellison, trying to do him harm. I mean, this was not just, you know, we're not just talking like paranoia here. They, they were, you know, I don't know if they actually had badges, but <laughs> they were the elephants, the, the, the enemies of Ellison. Um, and on the other hand, that didn't matter because he was far and away his own worst enemy. Um, this is a man who was hired once by the Walt Disney Company and who, over lunch in the commissary at Disney, started, a, started talking and just riffing like a jazz musician riffing, uh, like a, like a stand-up comedian riffing on the idea of Disney porno movies <laughs> and how Disney should get into porno movies. And this is, we're talking like late, late 60s here. So Harlan does a loud, enthusiastic rant about the things that they could do with Snow White and the Seven Dwarves if they wanted to. And, by, and, and lunch was over and he discovered his name on the parking space had already been painted over. Um, <laughs> Uh, you know, th 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 there is a, the anger and the fury, and, and it did have its downside. And, uh, you know, there were, toward, you know, the last, what, 30 years of his life, at least 25 years of his life, Harlan's short stories and books were being published and republished by small presses, by print-on-demand type presses, by things like that, not because they didn't sell, he was a, a completely viable commercial author. It's just no editors that I knew wanted to be phoned up by Harlan and shouted at. I once got shouted at by Harlan over the phone. Um, that was how we first really started talking. Um, he, 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 he didn't like something that I'd done in the secret origin of Batman. We'd met before in Glasgow a few years before. But um, I, I did a secret origin of Batman villains, and there was a scene that he didn't like, and he phoned me up to yell at me. 
And I thought, how do I deal with this? And I thought, I know. And I said, I'm really sorry. And I won't do it again. He said, oh, okay. And <laughs> the next time was probably five years on from that. And I got home one day. This is back when we had those proper answer phones. Um, for those of you under the age of 40, um, <laughs> These were actual sort of physical objects that sat there and they had lights that blinked and you would press a button and a little tape would rewind and then a voice would come out. Normally beginning, ah, uh, oh, right, okay. Uh, <laughs> Harlan's didn't. Harlan just began, Gaiman, this is Ellison. You fucker. <laughs> you fucking fucker. I will destroy you. I will eviscerate you. I will rip out your spleen and I will force it into your mouth. I am going to burn down your house. I am going to send ICBM nuclear weapons to destroy your house. I will come to the place where your house used to be, which is now just a smoking, smoldering, radioactive wasteland, and I will sow fucking salt so nothing ever grows there again. Call me. So... So, okay. So rather nervously, I, I called Harlan, and it's like, yeah, because that was how Harlan always answered the phone. Yeah, I, I, Harlan, it's near. Yeah, um, I, you, you left a message. Yeah, you fucker. <laughs> you gave. I just got a phone call from a journalist who said you gave him my phone number. I have fallen out with friends over not giving out your phone number. People have come to me begging for your fucking information. I have denied it. I have... There are, Bob Silverberg will never speak to me again because I wouldn't give him your fucking phone number and you gave out my fucking phone number. I'm like, no, I didn't. He said, you didn't? I said, no, I just told him you were in the phone book. <laughs> he said, oh, okay. Um, <laughs> But it was that thing of he had no middle gears. He had no, no, no volume control that, you know, modulated. You got full on the, the Mr. Angry, and editors didn't want to deal with, with the Mr. Angry. Um, it, it's strange. The last time I saw him was... Um, Actually, only about a week before he died. Um, it, and, and it was... It, um, I'd phoned him a month before on his birthday. And, he'd, and I promised him on his birthday I'd come by and see him when I was in L.A. He'd had a stroke. He was basically bed-bound at that point. Um, and then the trip to L.A. that I was going to make got destroyed and I was instead of being there for five days doing stuff I was now going to be there for 36 hours but I thought oh, but I promised him on his birthday I should go and so I, I landed at the airport got a car straight to Harlan's place sat down to see him and he's in bed and he'd been in rough shape the last few times I'd seen him but this time he was he was good he was very there and uh at one point, his wife, Susan, came in, and he said, you know, I'm not as angry anymore. 
He said, I've, le- I've been with Susan now for 35 years. And I think I've learned, you know, to some of, some of her calm has actually finally rubbed off on me. And she said, yeah, I'm angry all the time. <laughs> um, and, but there was a sort of strange feeling of the, the, the angriest man I knew had found some measure of peace right at the end. And hearing that he had died, it was like, yeah, okay. You, you, you know, you, you, the only way that the angel of death was ever going to drag you away was if you weren't fighting. Because up to that point, you know, you can see the angel of death going, hi, Harlan, it's me. Yeah, fuck off, what do you want? Yeah! Just get the fuck out of my face! Do you think, so, that, that drive and that, because I wondered when I reread The Glass Tea uh, shortly after you died, um, I wondered whether some of, the, of, of that anger and that passion came from an optimism that was thwarted. That idea of, because he seemed to also... That anger has a lot of humanism in it and a lot of compassion and a lot that you don't necessarily always see, you know, that, but somewhere in there. I think of things like Whimper of Whip Dogs, which is initially, I suppose, inspired by the, 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 the real, the true story of Kitty Genovese. Um, do you think that's one of the things that just kept the writing of trying to, you know, of trying to understand humanity and why it couldn't be better than it was? There was definitely a level of enormous frustration with and disappointment in humanity. At the same time, as you can't, I think, be a science fiction writer. And of course, if I used the word science fiction writer about Harlan, I would get yelled at because he not a fucking science fiction writer. I'm a, I'm a, I am whatever fucking Lewis Carroll was. I'm a, I'm a fabulist. Um, you know, I, which I think he just got very tired of being written off as it were, as a sci-fi writer. It was, it was definitely an insult. Um, but you could not write the, the stuff that Harlan wrote without both being an optimist and a pessimist. You have to be, you have to be clear-eyed enough to see humanity at its worst while also hoping for what it's going to be. Well, he had uh, one of my favorite stories of his is Jeff D is five which is an incredible story about a boy that just stops growing up. It's kind of in its own way something, there's a tin drumish effect. And then one of his friends who's now probably in his 30s, and when they go around together, they listen to the radio and they, oh no, they see the movies, don't they? When they go to the movies, they see the movies from when they were both children. Yeah. And the way it deals with that, that's something that I've been talking about in the show that I'm, I'm, I'm doing at lunchtime is that moment where you realise your child has to grow up and the adventures are going to change and you want them to remain a child. And in Jeff D is Five, it's, an, it's just such a brilliant exploration of why the necessity of moving on. It's also a story that I, I read when I was probably, you know, 14 and completely missed. There is, a, there is a special way that you can miss stories. And the joy for me of, of rereading that in my 20s was the moment where I go, oh, hang on, his dad takes him upstairs and obviously drops the radio into the bathtub with the kid and kills it. Oh, I completely failed to realize that the last time I read the story. Um, but it is, it's, it's a story... But again, it's story, it's Harlan doing this thing that he always did of making his childhood magical, of making 
the media of trying to say, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, it was that weird tension that I think produced Harlan of, on the one hand, absolute optimism in maybe we'll get into space, maybe we will sort this stuff out, maybe, maybe, maybe. And on the other hand, and everything's gone to, gone to hell in a handbasket since the 1930s. Um, but on the other hand, also having a very clear-eyed view of the 1930s. You know, he ran away from home, worked, as, as, worked in a circus underage, got thrown into thrown into jail. Um, you know, as a kid, he, he had these mad adventures, wanted to get out. What's that great line he has about lifting the flap of the backstage of the circus tent? I can't remember if there's a line, which again seems to be so much of what his stories can be. Lifting the, lifting the tent flap of the tent that you're not meant to see into, the tent that shows you... Because uh, we're nearly out of time. Uh, I, I just want to... You... you, uh, you you uh, presented a speech which then became a book about the native creativity and about art. Yep. And I, I just want to, for, for you, when you are writing, uh, do you have in your head a list of hopes of how your audience are going to be affected? Because it does seem with a lot of your writing, people are not merely getting a, a, a great story that enthralls them, but it does, like a lot of both great fiction, great science, great philosophy is that thing where you go, the world looks different today since I finished reading this or listening to this particular human being explain ideas. If it does that, then I'm glad. It's done what I hope it would do. Um, I know it's never going to do... The fiction is never going to do that for everybody. But occasionally... Occasionally it's in absolutely intentional. Neverwhere... One of the goals of writing Neverwhere was just wanting to imbue London with a little of the magic that writers like Chesterton had imbued London for me. So I thought, okay, I want to give that back. I just love the idea of somebody who's new to London, in from somewhere else in the UK, in from abroad, just being on the tube and looking at the tube map and going, oh my gosh. That's a real place. Piccadilly Circus is a real place. My God, there's Blackfriars. I wonder if there really are Blackfriars. That was definitely one of the things that I wanted to do, just imbue it with a little more magic. Um, but sometimes you realize that you've done it without that being what you set out to do. Um, I think with the ocean at the end of the lane, the reaction that I get that makes me happiest is when I get baffled people saying to me, I got to the end of the ocean at the end of the lane and you wrote about my childhood and my childhood was nothing like that. But that was me. And, and that, and I'm going good. I, I didn't set out to try and create something universal. I set out to write something very specific and personal and as true as I could. And it, because there is some truth there, it, you can see that truth and apply it to you. So I think you, you wind up, if you're right, if you're doing it well, doing some of that stuff anyway. Um, but 
a lot of the joy for me is just going, okay, this is how I see the world. I wonder if I can get other people, if I can write it well enough, I can get other people to see that too. Do you ever find you were, you were saying about Jeff Dears Five? Some you know not noticing. I think about Elvis Costello's. Is it his almost blue album? I think it's that the country and western album. I remember someone uh, reviewing it and saying. 30 years ago, as an enemy journalist, I thought this was rubbish. And uh, I thought Goodyear for the Roses was rubbish. And now I'm 52 and I go, oh, now I know what it means. Yeah. And I wonder whether sometimes you even find with your own work where you go, oh, now I think I know what I meant. When I wrote that, I didn't necessarily know what I meant. And now oh, I do. I'm, now I Absolutely. I mean, that, that's def I've definitely felt that way with Good Omens a few times. Going, oh, I said that when I was 28. And I was mouthing the words, and I think I got that right. And, and that is very wonderful. Or that, you know, Terry and I talking, and we built something there that feels true. Um, but I also think you can't read the same book twice because you're not the same person you were when you read it last time. And your life experience is going to have changed, your world has changed. Um, there are you know, the first time I picked up Gene Wolfe's Book of the New Sun, um, The Shadow of the Torture, I read the first couple of chapters, thought, I've no idea what's going on here. Put it away. Picked it up a couple of years later and was gripped from the first sentence. And I'd just grown up a little more. I was reading a little more deeply. I was smarter. Um, and suddenly this thing worked for me. Um... Still on Gene Wolfe, there's a book of his called Peace. The first time I read it, I read it as a sort of a pastoral. I read it as this old man remembering his childhood in 1930s America. I reread it maybe five years later, six years later, and I started going, this is really interesting. Characters keep disappearing from the story. And every time they disappear, the narrator seems wealthier or helped by the fact that this character, oh my God, he's killing them. Yeah. And I completely missed that the first time through. And, and it's like, because I wasn't the same reader that I was then. Um, and I, so I know that there are things of mine that have changed. Um, people, it's like when people say to you, well, would you write this character the same way now? And all you can say is, well, of course I wouldn't, because now is now. You know, I, I, a, a fine example of that would be um, in Sandman, the Game of You storyline, the character of Wanda. It was 1989 slash 1990, and I'm writing a trans character because I had a lot of trans friends, and I wanted to put the stuff that I was seeing in their lives and hearing from them about their lives, including the transphobia, about which I had known nothing, into my story. Because I, want, I, I was like, okay, I'm going to tell this story, and I'm going to have the character of Wonder, and she is my... You know, she's the one who will break your heart when she dies and then gets misgendered in death. This is going to be a thing. And I'm, and I was so proud of writing that story, so proud of the letters that were coming in, that the same people writing the letters to the editor 
going, who is this awful person? And what is he slash she doing in my story? At the first ones were going, oh my God, they, they cut her hair and they put the wrong name on her gravestone in the last one. I'm like, good, I have taken you somewhere. I have changed minds. And people go, well, how would you write that now? And I'm going, well, I wouldn't write that character now. There are lots of great trans authors out there writing trans stories that are, that are personal. And from, you know, I, but, but I'm, by the same token, I'm going to go, yeah, here you go. This is the first trans character in a DC comic from 1990-91. You better see this and put it into context of when it was because times change. And it's not like you want to go back and rewrite it. You're just, you look, okay, that was who I was. That was what was written um, 30 years ago. And that's fine. Things move. Brilliant. You have to go and get a train because this you. is your only event. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, Mr. Neil Gaiman. Thank you so much. I'll send you a message when you go Thank you very much for listening. Don't forget to check out CosmicShambles.com for all the other podcasts and blogs and videos and documentaries and stuff we do. And you can support what we do at Patreon.com slash BookShambles. And you can also check out the Science Shambles podcast, which we're putting out more regularly now as well. Chats with uh, various of our bloggers that have joined us from The Guardian and elsewhere. Uh, last week we had Robin and Michael Legg and John Butterworth and Jenny Roan. And there'll be another new episode out uh, this week or early next week with Robin and Ginny Smith and Marcus Chown and also uh, Matt Parker popped in as well. Have a great week and we will be back next week. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions.